Finally, you were gone for hours. Sorry, it took longer than I thought. To convince them? No, they were actually on board immediately. Getting everything set up, that was rather involved. But we're good to go? Everything is in place. Our little group had spent the remainder of the day holed up at the bank, sleeping mostly. Joseph and I desperately needed to catch up on our rest, especially with such a big night ahead of us. We'd roused in the early evening and got right to work. The rendezvous wasn't until midnight, but we had plenty to do before then. After we'd settled on our plan, I had left for the radio station and, as you just heard, was away for several hours before returning. After greeting me at the door, Joseph presented me with a gift. While Mavelise and the Ariels practiced and sparred with their new weapons, Joseph had been adding to my own. He'd retrieved the breastplate from the roof and had bolted arm straps to the inside of it. The armor had been designed to be worn on the body, so it was contoured and therefore a little awkward to hold. But it was the same basic size and shape of a shield, so it could be made to function as one. I took it up in my left hand, and in my right, I readied my basilard. I felt the weight of them both. Surprisingly, they balanced one another well. I looked to Joseph as he pulled his gauntlets on and made fists of them. You're just not going to be happy until the pair of us are in full suits of armor, are you? <laughs> oh, man, can you imagine? That would be so awesome. <laughs> you know, you never did tell me why you have all this stuff. We've been over this. I bought it from a pawn shop. A pawn shop, yeah, I know that part. But why? You couldn't have known one day you'd need any of it. Unless you did. No, no, it's nothing like that. I just, you know, I like historical stuff. If that were it, all these would be hung up on the walls in here. You didn't buy these for decoration. You drove around with them in the back of your truck. You had them ready for use. <sighs> these weapons, they, they once belonged to Violet. When I learned where they were, I went and purchased every last one of them. Violet. Violet. The book bearer that followed Rex Benton? Yes, she hawked them to finance an expedition to, well, she went to stop something very bad from happening. And she did, but it cost Violet her life. Oh, I didn't know. You barely mentioned her in season one. So was she featured in any of the stories you published? She was, but the story of her fate, it came to me from what was probably the most unusual source. More unusual than getting a story from the future? Remember how I told you that those monsters we faced at the radio station last spring were not the first that I had encountered? Well, that was true. You got the story of Violet's end from one of Grindel's... No, this thing first came to town for other reasons, but believe me, he fit right in with the Time Traveler's pets. So, what was it? Well, that's the thing. No one knew what he was, only what he was not. So what wasn't he? One of us. They called him the Non-Man. He was an ancient creature who could trick your mind into seeing him as something else, probably because his true form was so hideous to behold. The monster came to Circle City not knowing we had our own monster hunter. Violet tracked him down, defeated him, but then spared his life. The creature owed her a life debt and agreed to follow her, to obey her. She and the non-man stopped an apocalypse, or delayed it, anyway. Like I said, it cost Violet her life. While dying, she asked the non-man to return here, to find the Circle City Collector and tell him her story. She wanted the world to know. But you haven't told anyone. I have not. Not yet, anyway. Maybe in the next volume of stories? Perhaps. I don't know. What's stopping you? I killed the non-man. What? That creature is the one who murdered the Polydors. Oh. I... I didn't... Why haven't you told me any of this before? 
Shame, I suppose. Violet saw fit to spare the non-man. I did not afford him the same mercy. I wanted blood, and I took it. I waited until the non-man told me Violet's story. Then I destroyed him. Wow. Okay. Wow. Violet saw something in the non-man. Something redeemable. That's why she didn't kill him. I went against everything that I claimed to believe to have my revenge. And every day, I regret it. Why are you telling me this now? You didn't want there to be any more secrets between us, remember? Well, now you have all of mine. Oh. Well, thank you for confiding in- We should be on our way. It's still early in the night. Even still. May, we have hours before- She's right. It's going to take us a while to get into position. We should head out now. Okay then, here we go. Let's get you guys home. This is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast. Chapter 10, The War of the Worlds. Part of the prep work we'd done before I made my trip to the radio station had been to find the best vantage of the old iron foundry. It had to be close, but still far enough outside the perimeter Heartland Security had established. We needed a place to wait and to watch, to see if our enemies would be fooled by Hardesty's false signal. Joseph had retrieved one of his maps of Circle City from the basement, a more current one than we had previously used, but it was still not current enough. Looking it over, we'd decided the most optimal location for our little perch would be on the Cavalier Hotel. It was perfect. The place had closed down years before and had sat vacant ever since. We could get inside under the cover of night and climb to the roof without anyone ever seeing us. There was just one problem. The Cavalier Hotel had burned down a while back. I remember it distinctly because it was the same night I learned that my predecessor Ray Kadera, the creator of Circle City Supernatural, had passed away. I delivered the news live on the air. The authorities had said it was a clear case of arson that had brought down the old hotel, but no one was ever charged. Whoever was responsible, our plan had literally gone up in smoke. It wasn't completely hopeless though. The lot, it turns out, had been purchased by a developer with the intention of raising another, grander hotel in the place of the old Cavalier, what would be a five-star jewel in the Circle City skyline. The Imperial Hotel, or what was eventually going to be the Imperial Hotel, was still under construction at the moment, little more than framework and scaffolding. But this worked to our advantage. When the crew left for the day, the site would be abandoned. We assumed our only obstacle would be a security guard or some kind of night watchman meant to keep thieves at bay, as construction sites are often targeted for their materials. However, when Joseph and I pulled up in his truck, with Mavelise hiding under a tarp in the bed, there was, thankfully, not another soul to be seen. He parked on the street and we got out. The pair of us took a few minutes to look around, making sure that we were completely alone before we gave Mabelise the cue to emerge from hiding. She did so and whistled to her aerial companions who had been following us from overhead, flying from rooftop to rooftop. At her signal, they soared into the construction site and alighted among the uppermost bones of the Imperial Hotel. There they would wait for us. Joseph ducked back into the cab of his truck to grab our gear. He gave Mavelise the spear she'd chosen from his crate of medieval weaponry. Then he armed me as well. I loosened my belt by a couple of notches and tucked the basilard scabbard against my hip, then hung the shield on my arm in such a way that my hand remained free. Once ready, I looked to Joseph. He was already prepared. He'd not removed his gauntlets since putting them on earlier and had driven here wearing them. All he needed to do now was shoulder his backpack and retrieve a pair of bolt cutters. Mavelise and I watched as he snapped the padlock off a chain link gate that stood just down the way. The three of us then slipped onto the construction site and just like that, I was once again engaged in unlawful trespassing. 
The three of us started up the scaffolding. Mavelise, even with the spear in her hand, quickly outpaced us. She was an expert climber, leaping and swinging with impressive agility. It occurred to me that she must have done this countless times before. Being an amalgam, she was not capable of true flight, just gliding, which she could only do from a great height. So whereas her aerial companions could flutter to wherever they liked, Mavelise would be left to scale a pipe or a fire escape in order to reach the rooftops where they had spent most of their time while in Circle City. I'm sure that in certain situations, like when they'd left the foundry for the first time, the aerials would carry her into the sky where she could catch a channel of wind to ride. We soon joined the aerials on what would eventually be the seventh story of the building. I, for one, wasn't terribly fond of the height and felt a little dizzy. We had chosen our vantage wisely, however, as it gave us the perfect view of the old foundry, which was, to my estimation, less than a mile off. Joseph checked the time, then dug into his backpack. He went down the line of our group, dispensing to each of us the same item. What is it that you call these again? Binoculars. And why do you have so many? Do you have con artists on your world? Say again? Nothing, never mind. I don't really believe in coincidence anymore. Based on what I've seen, how could I? I don't think it was random happenstance that Joseph was extorted into buying six pairs of binoculars in our Halloween special, only for us to end up needing that exact amount as we perched with our new otherworldly friends on the side of a building. Just look through this end here. It will show you the distance in detail. These work like Gentry's spyglass. He wrote often of that thing in his manuscript. Does he still carry it? He does. I've read his story many times, but you've actually spoken to the man. I'm curious. Tell me about him. Actually, you and your woman remind me of Gentry and his beloved. She's... she's not my woman, Mavelise. Oh, I see. It is not just the women of your world who are foolish in matters of love. <clears throat> anyway... My friend, do not waste time. All of us have only so much of it. Life is better spent with those we love, yes? Joseph glanced at me to see if I was listening in, which of course I was, but I didn't let on. I continued peering through my binoculars, pretending to concentrate on the foundry. Soon I wasn't pretending. As we neared the top of the hour, the six of us kept our lenses narrowly focused on our destination, looking for any sign of mobilization. There was none. Anybody else getting nervous? Hold tight, everybody. There's bound to be a delay. The PX-39 has to first detect Hardesty's false signal and then trace its location here in Circle City before that information can be communicated to Heartland Security. Only then will they act on it. <sighs> Any time now. What if they don't take Hardesty's bait? What if he wasn't able to pull it off? Oh, he pulled it off all right. <laughs> Lindsay, look. I brought the binoculars back to my eyes and scanned. Corrugated bay doors began rolling up throughout those derelict warehouses that surrounded the foundry, and out came a fleet of generic black SUVs. Once in the roadway, they quickly formed a convoy that streamed from this part of the city. Thank you, Dr. Hardesty. Quickly, we must take to the air. And now came the part of the plan that I had tried to veto unsuccessfully. Now that Hartley and security had cleared out, we needed to get to the foundry and fast and there was only one way to do so. Let's just say we had chosen our lofty vantage for more than just the view. Lindsay, you come with me. The others will carry Joseph. Are you sure about this? I will not drop you, I promise. In one hand, Mavelise gripped her spear, and in the other, me. I clung desperately back. As we teetered on the edge, the fear made my mind go to strange places. Does it really bother you that I call you May? Actually, I hate it. You do? 
Over the edge we went, with me basically using Mavelise as a hang glider. She was strong enough to carry me, whereas it required all three of her companions to fly my giant partner. We swooped down, only to climb suddenly back up, now sailing on the wind. I did my best not to look down. In fact, for the first part of our flight, I closed my eyes altogether. I heard Joseph hooting excitedly from somewhere in the sky to my left. He was having the time of his life, because of course he was. When I dared to look again, I saw the old foundry coming up fast beneath us. Prepare yourself, Lindsay. When we came within reach of the surface, Mavelise drew her wings in sharply to catch the air and the pair of us decelerated. Still, there was momentum to be dealt with, so I started moving my feet to get a running start for when I reconnected with the ground. Mavelise released her hold at just the right second and I dashed forward a few faltering steps before slowing to a stop. Ahead of me, Mavelise made a similar landing, then clapped her wings together and turned back to face me, nodding. I nodded in return, this was my only reaction. Thankfully, I still had enough dignity to keep me from getting on my face and kissing the asphalt. But man, I really wanted to. The aerials then made a much more vertical landing beside us, setting Joseph down. When they'd withdrawn from him, I saw the biggest grin on my partner's face. That was awesome, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. Let's go again. Come, time is short. Mavelise was right. Our window had started out very narrow and was already closing. We'd landed in the lot behind the foundry, so Joseph and I turned to that familiar rear entrance, but we both hesitated to approach. Neither of us were convinced that Heartland Security hadn't left someone behind to hold down the fort. It seemed implausible that they hadn't, but our arrival was not met with shouts or alarms. This encouraged us, enough to start toward the building anyway, that enormous husk of crumbling brick. Mavelise and the aerials followed behind. We paused briefly at the door and readied our weapons. Then, with a collective deep breath, we rushed inside, taking defensive positions. We were met by no one, but our group held fast. The moonlight shone down through the skylights and illuminated the vast interior. We eyed every cluster of shadows, waiting, listening. There was no trusting the quiet. My partner and I had been fooled by it last time. Joseph began scanning the rafters overhead for any sign of those snipers, but it seemed even they had been called away. Reluctantly, cautiously, our group acknowledged that we were truly alone and began inching deeper into the foundry. The place wasn't quite how Joseph and I had left it, however. Near the crucible in which Heather had both hidden from and filmed the strangels, there were racks of equipment. They sat on casters and had been rolled into position for quick use. To what purpose, we learned with a closer look. One rack held a series of heavy shackles with wrist and ankle cuffs, as well as another attachment whose function could only be for the restraining of wings. Joseph had already moved on to the other rack. I joined him there and together we beheld what I initially mistook as a dozen black cudgels. These were not mere whacking sticks, however. Each had a button on the handle and a couple of electrodes at the tip. A moment more and I realized that these were stun batons similar to cattle prods, but undoubtedly stronger in their voltage. Heartland Security had every intention of taking our friends alive, but I knew Mavelise and the Aerials would sooner die. We gotta get you guys out of here. Where's the portal? It's supposed to be forming here, right? So why isn't it? It will appear. Have faith. It's time we need, and we're just about out of it. I had barely gotten this out before a flash of headlights swept across the filthy windows at the front of the foundry. We knew it was the return of Heartland Security. 
Run! We cannot. Joseph, tell them. We have to go. No, no. They're back way too soon. How are they... It doesn't matter. They're here now. Let's move. Hold your ground. This is our only chance. We had less than a moment to react to Heartland's arrival, and we'd spent it indecisively. Now we had no option but to confront them. Our group had watched an army's worth of personnel depart from this derelict section of town, but it was only the smallest fraction that came bursting through the front entrance. It was a team of eight people, five men and three women, but don't get me wrong, we still had every reason to be afraid. They were a formidable force indeed. All were clad in tactical armor complete with helmets, goggles, and masks. These withheld their faces and whatever expressions of astonishment they had for the sight of the strangles. And, predictably, they were all carrying some pretty heavy firepower. I don't know much about guns, but theirs would easily cut someone in half, I'm sure of it. Regardless, we did not raise our hands and surrender. No, this would not be like last time. As I said, our winged companions would not be taken alive. As for Joseph and I, we had bound ourselves to the fate of our friends. We were prepared to fight and die for them. And while that opportunity was forthcoming, it hadn't arrived just yet. I knew it! I knew it was you! Operative Fivecoat was the last to enter the foundry, and when he saw us squaring off with his goons, he was equal parts annoyed and impressed. The pair of you. Oh, can't even begin to tell... Hang on now. Who do we have here? This was Fivecoat's first look at the Strangels. He, like Joseph and I, like everyone else who'd witnessed them, had the same startled reaction to first sighting visitors from another world. Even an operative like Fivecoat, a henchman of the Cabal, who'd certainly seen all manner of odd things in his line of work, could not withhold his astonishment. Nor did he try. Wow, they are something, huh? I always expected aliens to be all tentacles and slime, but these things... How did you know we were here? A hunch. And a pretty good one, too, as it turns out. When word came down and the wormhole had opened somewhere else in the city, I had my suspicions. But orders are orders. So we all headed to the new coordinates. Along the way, though, I just couldn't shake this feeling that this might be a red herring. I'm a listener of your podcast, remember? I know how you little scamps like to pull tricks. So me and a handful of these good folk here double back just to make sure. And guess what? Here you are. Fivecoat then tapped his earpiece. Oh, and the rest of Heartland has just been summoned back here as well. They should be joining us anytime. But before they get here and start making a bunch of noise, tell me, how'd you do it? It was Hardesty, wasn't it? Of course it was. It'd have to be. So he fooled his own creation to get us all out of here. That must mean the gateway is set to reopen here, yeah? I knew it. When? Oh, any minute now, isn't it? Oh, man, this is so exciting. Feel another promotion coming on. You can stop gloating now. You guys should be the ones gloating. Even though I figured you out, this, all this, was still very impressive. It's not every day some nobodies fool us. Hats off to you. But I really shouldn't be surprised, huh? You're the ones who defeated Clarence Grendel, after all. Traveler of space and time, thwarted by some podcasters. Even the Cabal, as you like to call us, with all of our infinite resources, hadn't figured that one out. So thanks, we really appreciate it. What? What are you talking about? Grindel was a variable in our equation, one that we didn't know how to remove. But then you guys came along and did it for us. It's actually because of you two that we can move forward with our plan for Circle City. Grindel, while the father of the Cabal, has not been one of us in some time, as the man told you himself. You see, the problem was, Grindel had his own plan for Circle City, to turn it into the new land of phantoms, preparing a hell for his old enemy, Charlie Winston. All that nonsense he told you about. Well, 
didn't exactly jive with our plans for Circle City. But he's no longer an issue, so again, thank you. We didn't stop Grindel for you. But you did. I tried telling you this before. Everyone does their bidding, whether they know it or not. But it seems you've outlived your usefulness. And you've already spent your one indulgence. I told you not to come back to this place, and here I find you. And with illegals. So disappointing. Anyway, I want the butterflies alive. Kill the other two. That will not be happening. Mavelise leapt in front of Joseph and I, the aerials rushing in behind her, weapons raised. We had bound ourselves to their fate. Apparently, they had done the same to ours. Wow, English. Cool. Okay, take them all alive. We'll figure it out later. Five Coat soldiers silently obeyed and disarmed themselves, but then went to that rack of stun batons. They each took one in hand, switching on the electric current. Then the eight of them advanced on us. We were outnumbered, but with guns on the floor, our odds were better now. And so, yet again, this podcast found itself doing epic battle with the forces of darkness. Ugh! security gave us a fight for which we were not ready. Joseph and I had faced down creatures that were all kinds of terrible, but these new foes did not have the minds of beasts. These were intelligent, well-trained operatives, literal experts in the fields of combat and strategy. Their skill level was easily the best in the world. It would have to be for them to be assigned to such an exclusive unit, tasked with such an important mission. I had assumed early in our fight that they were just keeping us busy until their reinforcements arrived to overwhelm us. They were not. This team didn't need reinforcements. Like I said, they outnumbered us, but it was only slightly. Even still, it was more than enough. I had thought that without their guns, we had a fighting chance, but we really didn't. An electric shock from one of their batons dropped you as quickly as any bullet. Even with my new shield, which kept me in the fight longer than I would have been otherwise, I was still the first to fall. The aerial soon joined me, then Joseph. Mavelise was the last to go down. We lay vanquished at the feet of our enemies. Five Coat stepped forward and looked down on us, shaking his head. He parted his lips to say something snarky, but he paused, looking suddenly all around. I thought he heard the rest of Heartland Security coming, but that wasn't it. 
It was something else. We all became aware of it then. In trying to understand what was happening, I recalled that someone had once described it to me. It began with this weird noise. Maybe noise isn't even the word. It was more of a feeling, like a tingling, like something moving in the air. I don't know exactly how to explain it. I've never experienced anything even remotely similar. It was scary, sure, but at the same time, wonderful. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for coming to us, for getting Joseph and I to this place. All you wanted was for the truth to be told, and it will. The whole truth, your own included. You did not die by a drug. You were murdered by Heartland Security, by the Cabal, by cowards who lurk in darkness. And it's because of you, Heather, and your sacrifice, that we can now cast a light into that darkness. The passageway between worlds tore open behind us and brought with it a tempest of wind, a maelstrom of light. The murky foundry was suddenly blazing in emerald. As you can well imagine, this thunderstruck all present. Our enemies lost interest in their victory over us and just stared. One of them even dropped his baton. I guess training can't prepare you for everything. Those of us on the floor made a slow rise back to our feet, then turned to the wormhole. It was difficult to look upon directly. I had expected a rounded portal, as wormholes are often depicted in science fiction, but this was more of a valley. I turned to Mavelise and the aerials. They had seen this before, of course, when they came through, but it still evoked in them the same awe and bewilderment. I then looked to Joseph, to his bruised and bloodied face, to his teary eyes. He, more than any of us, had longed for this moment, to behold the doorway between worlds. He'd spent years trying to imagine it from descriptions in old books, but the Pendergast chroniclers, like Heather, and now me, had failed to relate it in full. It's impossible to properly convey the power, the amazement, even the fearful reverence that such a phenomenon as this demanded from those rare souls fortunate enough to bear witness. So it was either very surprising or very fitting that it was Joseph who first snapped out of its trance. Mavelise, go! No, stop them, stop them now! Our friends, at first, leapt toward the portal, but then turned suddenly back when the operatives charged us, so that we all once again clashed in the middle. Both sides fought harder than before. The stakes were so much higher now. Worlds were about to collide in what is probably the most literal use of that expression ever. In the background, we could hear the rest of Heartland Security pulling up outside. And behind us, on the other side of the portal, the natives were there, no doubt amassed, ready to welcome back their companions. They were not ready to repel an invasion. They would be immediately overcome by the nearing army. We could not let that happen. Joseph and I had vowed that after Heather, no more lives would be lost to the Cabal. Well, no more lives save our own, that is. You have to leave! Get through and close the portal! They will kill you! Come with us! We can't! We have to hold them off! Go! Just go, May! This will this will all be for nothing if you don't! I will see you again, my friends. Farewell. Stop them! Our companions turned and leapt into the light of the portal, leaving Joseph and I facing overwhelming numbers. But all we had to do was keep them back, just for another minute. And don't ask me how we did. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which there was not a higher power at work in our favor. 
Joseph had snatched up that dropped stun baton and was swinging it wildly about, just as I was my sword. He and I slashed back and forth, warding off Heartland, keeping them from reaching the portal. They kept advancing, however. He and I were back to the very edge of the wormhole. Both of us wanted so badly to take one more step backward and vanish into another world. But if we had, our enemies would be right behind us. And if they took possession of the orb, it was all over. The light began to lessen behind us, so we knew the doorway was closing. Almost there. The Heartland army was storming the foundry now and swarming our location. Just a little longer. We were so close. Fivecoat, who'd so far been nothing more than a spectator to the fray, suddenly ran madly into it, shoving past his own people to reach the shrinking wormhole. Before he could get through, though, Joseph tackled him to the floor, but in so doing let down his guard to those he was fighting. They shocked and clubbed him with their batons. I, too, was thrown down and received the same treatment. They had overcome us yet again. But this time, we were the victors. The portal had clapped shut and vanished from sight. Joseph, still clutching five coat, whispered to the man. And that's as close as you'll ever get. Fivecoat elbowed Joseph to loosen my partner's grip over him, then pulled himself back to his feet, swearing furiously. Joseph rolled on his side, facing me. He and I were just a couple of beaten heaps laying on the floor, but still we smiled. Even as a legion of Heartland security edged in on us, guns aimed, we smiled. Okay. Okay, you got this. You guys, do you know what you've cost me? Another promotion? <laughs> oh. That's cute. That's a great one-liner before your death. Too bad no one is ever going to hear it. You, give me your sidearm. No one will know what you did here tonight. Sorry, Miss Mallon, but I'll be burying your recorder with you. This isn't a recorder. This is my phone with a mic attachment. I figured you wouldn't notice, not with everything going on. This is how we do remotes. You know what those are, right? When a radio station broadcasts on location? What did you do? You said you were a fan of Circle City Supernatural. Well, Operative Five Coat, you just had your own episode. You, go see if she's lying. I'm not. Our ratings suck. But I know at least some people are out there listening right now. And go ahead, cut the signal like you did with Zhao. That's only gonna make people believe this really happened. Maybe more so than killing us live on the air. You... Five Coat, shut up. By now, your bosses have tuned into this, so I'm going to address them directly. Listen to me very carefully. If you want to stay in the shadows, if you want everyone to keep on thinking this is all fake, another part of a fictitious podcast, then you have to let us go. If Joseph and I walk out of here, then everyone will believe that all of this tonight was just more audio theater from a couple of frauds. The strangles are gone. The portal is closed. The orb is beyond your reach. Cut your losses. You still have plans for this city, right? You're not going to scuttle those plans with any more unwanted attention, are you? Great speech. You done? Why am I asking? I know you're done. Fivecoat's finger got tight around the trigger, but he was halted by a voice in his ear. His free hand came up to his communication device. 
Ma'am, confirm that, please. Copy. Yes, ma'am. I understand. I think lowering his gun was the hardest thing Five Coat ever had to do. Either that, or the order he gave next. Pack it up. We're done here. Yes, you are. Wordlessly, Heartland Security gathered up their injured and their equipment, removing it all from the scene. Joseph and I just laid there on the filthy, cold floor as they scuttled around us like insects until there was not a single trace left of their months-long encampment. Not until they had all left and we heard their vehicle speed off did my partner and I attempt to stand. We were a pathetic pair indeed as we hobbled from the foundry. We emerged into an eerie quiet, the same silence we'd encountered when first we came here. But this time, we were now truly alone, but not for long. Sylvia had been waiting in the WCCX van a few miles away, listening to the broadcast on the radio, waiting for her cue to come fetch us. Joseph pulled back the side door and helped me load up. Then he crawled in behind me and slid the door closed. There were no benches in the back of the van, just radio equipment, so the pair of us resumed our positions from the foundry floor, lying on our backs beside one another. We're still alive, by the way, if you have any parting words. We are? Oh, okay. This is Lindsay Mallon, signing off. I'll be back on the air tomorrow night with more unbelievable stories. Good night, Circle City. Just got a text from Gary, back at the station. He says we're clear. And he got it all recorded, right? Of course. Oh, speaking of which, here's your field recorder. It's already running. Thank you, Sylvia. Hey, we're all getting fired anyway. Might as well go out in a blaze of glory. I think it's probably for the best that they shut us down. No radio show, means no podcast, and this thing is going to get the two of you killed. Can't believe it hasn't already. Joseph and I had once again emerged from a situation in which we should have absolutely been killed. I guess the pair of us were the strangely undying. But yeah, Sylvia was right. About that anyway, not about the getting fired part. Because of the poor ratings, we thought sure station management was going to pull the plug on our show. But if they weren't already, they surely would after the stunt we just pulled, going live on the air without permission. So you can imagine our surprise when we sat down with them for that meeting the following week, and they gushed over what they called our best episode ever. Sylvia, Gary, and I exchanged subtle looks among ourselves. We opted not to explain, but rather let our bosses tell us what they thought we had done, and then just agree with it. Remember, it had been station management's idea to try to incorporate more elements from our hit podcast into the radio show. That's why Joseph and I had gone to Melgren last October for the Halloween special. They had assumed that our remote broadcast was just us taking their idea to the next level. We nodded, happy to let them believe it. Although, throughout the meeting, I kept getting confused and concerned glances. The cut on my forehead and the bruise on my cheek would leave at least a couple of them wondering what had really happened. But, as they likely will with this very spot of narration, they assumed it a part of the metafiction universe Joseph and I had created, that it was merely committed play-acting on my part. Unlike the Halloween special, however, our live broadcast had done exactly what it was meant to. Our listenership was back up, way up. By the end of our remote, most of the city had tuned in to our little AM station. Apparently, people had called their friends and family, waking them up in the middle of the night to listen. It was a comparatively brief show, but the ratings were the highest the station had ever seen. And it was enough to save Circle City Supernatural from cancellation, at least for now. We can't pull off something like that every night, of course, but we'd gotten our heads above water again. Unfortunately, the same was not true for my partner. 
Joseph's landlord had given him two weeks to vacate the bank. I'd been going over during the day to help him pack. We'd saved the library for last, and when we finally came to it, he simply shut down. Joseph couldn't bring himself to pull a single volume out of its place. I suggested we take a break and go get some lunch at Joe's. He agreed and we headed to the diner. Besides, it was that time of the day we preferred, when we'd have the place to ourselves. And we were not disappointed. Stepping in, we saw no one else around. Not even Piper, who was probably in the kitchen. And we didn't call for her either. She'd be with us when she could. In the meantime, we seated ourselves in the usual corner booth in the back. This kind of feels like it's going to be the last episode of the season. It was certainly climactic enough. Well, what I mean is, we need to figure out what we're going to do about the cavern before we can start releasing episodes. Oh, right. And here we found ourselves at a kind of crossroads. How so? It's a paradox. Pendergast's clean energy engine is exactly what the world needs right now. It's no exaggeration to say that it could save the world. But the problem is, the people who run the world will only use this technology to advance their own evil agenda. You said Pendergast fought to keep it out of the Cabal's hands. Indeed. There's absolutely no way to take it public without them swooping in to snatch it away. But neither can I imagine destroying the last two examples of his technology. I know I said earlier that I was willing to, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe we don't have to. Not yet, anyway. Maybe we can keep the cavern hidden, remove or change things in the recordings to make it impossible to find. Or maybe we can pull the bard out of there before we destroy the place and hide him somewhere else. Maybe. Heck, maybe I'll go live there myself. I need a new place, after all. Joseph, you can't go live in a hole in the ground. Even though it fits your personality perfectly, it's just not realistic. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding. I do have an idea about where we can stash the bard, though, but I'll tell you when we're not recording. I'm more concerned with where we're going to stash you. Ugh, can we talk about this when we're not recording? It's something you said on the roof the other night. You said people were like me and that, instead of reading the books, they prefer to hear the story from you. Well, what if we added another Patreon tier that would give people access to you reading the books? We could start with the first one and do a chapter at a time, kind of like our own audiobooks. Last season I told you you had a good voice for it. What do you think? That's a nice idea, Lindsay, but it wouldn't be nearly enough or soon enough. Remember, I have to be out I know, I know. But maybe we can- Best episode ever! Piper came out of the kitchen and grabbed up the old radio that was always on the counter, over which Circle City Supernatural played nightly. She squeezed it excitedly. Seriously, that was great, you guys. I loved it. Thank you. Thanks, Piper. So good. Okay, okay. I'll get you guys some coffee now. <laughs> Be right back. <laughs> She's such a gem. Joseph, you with me? Joseph's attention had fixed on the old radio and hadn't strayed from it since Piper set it back down and returned to the kitchen. What is it? You know, Piper was right. Well, I don't know if it was really the best episode ever. Top five at least. No, I mean, last season, when she sat here with you and said that I used to come in here to listen to your show, she said that's when I fell in love with your voice. Oh, I just thought she was being... And one of the first things you told me when we met was not to fall in love with you. I know you meant it as a joke, but it was already too late. Joseph, I... Incoming coffee! Did you guys see this? You made the paper! Huh? Oh. Did we? <clears throat> um, one of the things I love about this city, it still has a good old-fashioned physical newspaper. Let's see if you still feel that way here in a minute. Okay, okay, what do we got here? 
The War of the Worlds. A cheap pastiche, anyway, of the Orson Welles classic radio program from 1938 was perpetrated by local radio host Lindsay Mallon. In a less than clever reverse of the H.G. Wells classic, aliens were not invading planet Earth, but rather trying to escape it. WCCX 1590 AM released a brief statement yesterday calling the broadcast a stunt that got out of hand and has promised an internal investigation. Miss Mallon has come under increased scrutiny over the past several months and has even been criticized for her documentary podcast that has been accused by many of being a, uh, well, anyway, you know how the rest goes. Sorry, Lindsay. It's fine. I knew what was coming. Really doesn't even bother me. Well, I thought it was just amazing. Thank you, Piper. You're sweet. Besides, what do they... Oh, it's back. What? What's back? Remember me telling you guys about that SUV that kept coming around here? Well, there it is. Joseph and I turned to peer out the window beside our booth. In the parking lot was a black SUV with darkly tinted windows. No, it can't be them. Heartland was told to stand down. The driver door swung open and out stepped a mountain of a man at least as tall as Joseph, maybe taller, and thick with muscle. He wore a dark suit and sunglasses. Joseph and I slid out of the booth, putting Piper behind us as we took defensive positions. She was alarmed, but said nothing. None of us did. We just watched tensely through the window. When the man turned to open the door behind his, it became apparent that he was not an operative of Heartland Security. No, this was a bodyguard who then escorted his client from the SUV into the diner. We did not put down our guard, however. In fact, when we saw who now stood before us, we took an even harder stance. I don't believe that we have formally met. My name is Eric Quintero. You are, of course, Lindsay and Joseph of the Endless Elsewhere podcast. We knew this was not Clarence Grindle, but when we had clashed with the Traveler of Time and Space, he'd been wearing this man's body, spoken with this man's voice, so a visceral reaction on our part was, frankly, unavoidable. I'm sorry to ambush you like this, but I was afraid that if I reached out in a more traditional way, you would decline my invitation. And based on your expressions, I can see that I was correct. I've been coming here often, hoping to cross paths with the pair of you. Hello back there. I'm sorry if I caused you any alarm. It was not my intention. You see, I've listened to your podcast, and I know this is one of your haunts. I understand your standoffishness. Truly, I do. But I'm not that man. Not anymore. And that's thanks to you. We didn't do it alone. You should really be thanking the Unclosing Eye Detective Agency. They had the plan, the know-how. Yes, but those people were willing to kill me to stop Grindle. It was the pair of you who persuaded them to do otherwise. I not only owe you my freedom, but my very life as well. You're welcome. Yeah, don't worry about it. Anytime. I am leaving Circle City and will never return. Too many bad memories, as you can well imagine. I've spent the last few months getting my affairs in order, selling off property, assets, and so on. Essentially, tying up loose ends. This is the last one. Joseph and I both flinched when Quintero took something in hand. We hadn't seen it behind his back. It hung on his shoulder by a thin strap. I guess we were too distracted to notice that he carried the painting's canister with him. You left this at my house. I thought I should return it. Thanks, but you really didn't have to go to the trouble. Neither did you. But you did. Goodbye. And just like that, he was gone. Quintero and his bodyguard returned to the SUV, and it sped off. If what he said was true, we'd likely never see him again. And that was okay with us. Again, we knew Quintero was not Grindle, but we'd attached his face to that evil spirit, and it was hard to see him as anything else. 
But then, we really needed to try, because whereas Grindel was the man who'd made himself a demon, Quintero may as well have been an angel. On an impulse, Joseph opened the canister. It was not empty. There was a manila envelope rolled up inside. He gave me a confused look as he pulled it out and broke the seal. Well, what is it? No way. What? Is it money? Did he just solve your rent situation? Uh, sorta. It's the deed to the bank. He bought the building and turned it over to me. What? So, yeah, whatever force is working in our favor, it smiled on us yet again. Mind you, it's still gonna be up to us to keep the lights on at the old bank. It's not like we have a wealthy benefactor now or anything. So keep that support coming, listeners. Those book and t-shirt sales really help, as does that Patreon money. Especially because now we have to start paying the way for the newest member of our team. And happily I have arrived at the last, unto the wished haven of my bliss. With season two about to move into post-production, Joseph and I had to transplant the bard from his cavern to another, safer hiding place, which of course I will leave unspecified. I was in Adelaide's clothing again so that the mechanical man followed what he thought was his sister from the former Pendergast estate, through the woods and along the rail trail to the nearest place Joseph could park his truck. Getting the bard up our makeshift ramp, then lying him down in the bed had been quite the ordeal especially doing so unseen. But once he was in place, we covered the bard in that same tarp with which Mavelise had cloaked herself. If it was good enough for an alien, it was good enough for a robot. Then we had driven the bard to his new home. Joseph removed the tarp and lowered the gate, then set the ramp into place again. The machine rolled down from the bed, which then sprang back up, the weight of our companion having sagged heavily on the suspension. His cylindrical head swiveled about, taking the place in. You're gonna stay here now. We'll come back from time to time, okay? And so it is. For this time, I will leave you. Tomorrow, if you please to speak with me, I will come home to you. Or, if you will, come home to me, and I will wait for you. I think he gets it. Oh, he does. He'll do whatever you tell him in that outfit. (laughs) Can't say I blame him. So I still look historical? As a matter of fact, yes. Good because I grabbed the rest of Adelaide's clothes from the wardrobe while you were prepping the bard. (laughs) So, what now? What do you mean? We got the Strangles home, stopped Heartland, saved my radio show, saved the bank, and we just moved the bard to a safe place. It's just, we're all set up for whatever comes next. But like, what is that? By the end of season one, we knew what to focus on next. But where do we go from here? Do we tackle all that stuff Hardesty was talking about? What? What's our next adventure? This. Joseph grabbed me and kissed me. What was that? This is me taking the advice of a friend. Oh yeah? Seems like good advice. He kissed me again. And again. He didn't stop. Joseph, I have to finish the show. (laughs) So do it already. (laughs) It's kind of hard when you won't stop kissing me. Do you want me to stop? Well, I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, go on then. Do good. Fight evil. Repeat. This is the Endless Elsewhere pod. Oh, forget it. The course of true love never did run smooth.